folks, this is Scott Parker, and you're listening to episode 44 of the ZappaCast for April of 2020. On this episode, we're going to continue with part two of our conversation with the incredible Professor Mick Eakers about his new book, Zappa's Gear. And as a special added bonus, we're going to have an interview with Frank from way back in the mists of time, recorded over 50 years ago in 1967. But more about that in a little bit. Just wanted to say something about future episodes of the ZappaCast. We were going to do a few shows that were focused on the upcoming summer tour for the Zappa band. As many of you know, they were going to do a tour with Ken Crimson. And now due to the coronavirus pandemic, that tour has been postponed until 2021. But there are lots of exciting new releases on tap and stuff that's going to be coming out. And of course, the Alex Winter, Frank Zappa documentary, which is going to be released soon. Some of the early showings and premieres have been postponed once again due to the pandemic, but we will all get right eventually, and I suspect you all will be very, very happy in the future. But for now, here is part two of our two-part interview with Mick Eakers about Zappa's gear. Mick Eakers, Ian Wadley, and myself right here on the ZappaCast. Okay, part two. One of the guitars I wanted to ask, and we were talking about Deep Ender before. Hi, Deep Ender. I know that you're out there. Is the the gold top Les Paul from late Mothers of Invention gigs in um, 68 yep. and 69 and the Hot Rat Sessions, of course. Yep. You were not able to photograph that guitar yourself, which you'll have to explain why <laughs> to the folks at home. Yeah. So the guitar was, well, I'm, I'm just going to say it. I'm, I'm actually convinced the guitar was stolen from Frank. It was stolen from him almost certainly when he went to the Emojis Festival with Beef Park, the one where he played with Pink Floyd and so forth. Um, and that's, that's where the guitar got lost because there's a photograph of Frank, which I managed to get for the book, of Frank sitting there at the beginning of the concert and there's the guitar case mm-hmm. but then as you'll see he, he used borrow guitars throughout the festival because somebody had stolen it so it turned up quite a few years ago in a london online auction house and it, it crops up about every every few years they put it up for auction again always with a ridiculously high price and so far as far as i know they've never sold it and so what somebody I know actually went and saw it at the auction room, and that's where I got the picture in the book, basically, which is fortunately he had a friend with him who took a picture on his camera on his phone. So oh, that's great. <laughs> um, that's where that came from, huh? Yeah. Oh wow. And so, and and for a time, myself and and a couple of other people and Gail and Dweezil were trying to get sort of legal action to get this guitar returned to them, mm-hmm. but. It foundered because of lack of evidence. We don't think Frank necessarily filed a claim with the Belgian authorities, and if he did, it's almost certainly lost to that. So mm-hmm. it's very hard to to do that, and so that just sort of foundered. It would be nice if somebody, you know, just bought it and gave it back to the family. Yeah. But <laughs> so, so Dweezil did, um, as we know, he made a, a pretty good replica of it. In fact. Yeah, it looks, the same. looks the same guitar. 
pretty it's pretty much the same i think yeah it's, it's, a, it's a little bit tidier but it's no it's pretty good it's pretty good but um that's another one that got ripped up more than ripped up really i mean you know the the, the hole for the extra pickup you know you put a telly pickup on it i mean he's just yeah. someone's gone in there with a chisel you know frank was doing some of that stuff when he was uh using the guitar because if you look at the pictures of it in 68 it's pretty much stock right it's stock p90 pickups yeah originally yeah that's right yeah yeah and he, and graduated- he was using it on stage you, that you way. can see see the trail of changes he did with his sg as well it's something that we all tend to forget but the time he got this SG, it was before the British blues boom. It's before Eric Clapton and everyone had made these guitars desirable, mm-hmm. and and you couldn't give them away. They were really cheap. I People didn't were probably paying more that. for a music mask. Yeah, yeah. They were really unpopular. Everybody liked the SG. The Les Paul was just an old fashioned type of guitar that Gibson didn't make anymore, mm-hmm. and so he bought it. And I I think. Um, and I do mention this book that there was another SG, another Les Paul. I think he had two of them. Really? Yep. A gold top uh, or just a, a a gold top? Right. So here's here's the story, and memory gets hazy. That's but okay. I remember very very vividly seeing the Mother's Invention for the first time in '68 at the Festival Hall. That was that was lovely. It's the, it's the the band that's on ahead of their time. Oh, that's right. This is in the book. Yeah. <laughs> so I was watching this um, from, from quite a way back. I was only young, a long time ago. But what happened? It, he did two shows that night, and on the second show, which is not the one on ahead ahead of their time, so it's not recorded, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But they're raging through. I don't know some complicated piece. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure what it would be. Orange lumber truck or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly Frank just puts his hand up and the band stopped in mid-bar, just stopped dead. And then he picked the mic and said, I'm sorry, I've broken a string on my guitar. I'm going to have to change it. <laughs> and everyone went, okay. Impressed at how they stopped. And and in those days, most bands, they didn't have a guitar tech. They didn't have backup guitars or anything else like that. Sure. You know, you, you would see someone go, oh, I've broken a guitar on a you'd expect him to get a string out and put it on on stage. Mm-hmm. But so that's what we thought Frank meant. But then lo and behold, he walked to the side of the stage and someone gave him another. And as far as I can see from way back, it looked like exactly the same Les Paul Goldtop. And he walked back on the stage, plugged it in, mm-hmm. tuned it, put his hand up, looked around the band, put his hand down and they started again exactly that point in the middle of the bar and off they went. (laughs) And of course the audience roared with laughter and they laughed at the joke that, you know, he'd meant change his guitar, not change his guitar string because that was very unusual at the time. So I think there may have been another one. And all I know is that there's a picture on one of the early albums that you can see Jimmy Carl Black and there's another Les Paul case Mm -hmm. behind him with an X on it in tape, and it's not the same. sandwich? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. And it's not the same case that we see Frank with in the picture here because that had the mother's sticker on it. So it's a different – well, we know there was a different Les Paul case knocking Mm -hmm. around. I think I saw another one. So I think somewhere there was Guitar X, which he might have just borrowed for the tour, of course. Who knows? But there you go. 
So, yeah, I mean, who knows what could have happened? <laughs> That's just amazing. <laughs> um, when the Les Paul, the Hot Rats Les Paul turned up, did they paint? Do I have this right? They painted the case green and painted yes. over the mother's sticker. And uh, oh, yeah. yeah. And you can see the outline of the sticker, I believe. Exactly. So oh, boy. you can. That's subtle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it just looks like green household paint. And the the guy when the when the police were looking at it, some guy who'd sold it to the auction house said, Oh yeah, well, that's what we did in those days, you know, and it was he claimed it had been sold it legitimately by one of Frank's roadies who'd had it sold to him uh, and yeah, it's nonsense, absolute nonsense. Yeah. But that person legally owns that guitar or can legally sell it and that well that person i don't is no longer alive anyway so as far as i know the people who've paid money for it is the auction house or a client of theirs i think they have control of it yeah do you have any idea what they were asking for it i can't you know i can't remember the exact price it was sort of Hundreds of thousands, I think. I can't remember. A lot it of money. Definitely over a hundred grand. I know that. Yeah. I mean, because if they'll take a two-party out-of-state check, you know, I might be very interested <laughs> in this. Yeah. Be worth a try. Wonder if it passes signal. You know, if you could get yeah, signal they, through it. They, they take Bitcoin. You know, yeah. I might be able to figure something out. <laughs> That's. The I mean, it, it's thing. it's going to sound dreadful, probably. It doesn't you know? look like it would sound very good, does it? <laughs> it doesn't. I mean, there's another interesting thing that I picked up by sort of looking at these photographs forensically is that he added on the um bigsby horseshoe whammy bar yep that's right and he picked the wrong model because <laughs> gibson used to supply them as a stock option mm-hmm. and they did a sort of a long tail one and a short one and he should have had one with a much longer piece so that the the tremolo arm is much nearer the the pickups and so on. And if you look at it, you can see that where it is, is actually fouling the controls. And so he wouldn't have been able to sort of bend down because it would actually not work because it would hit the controls. So it was in the wrong position. So whoever put that on it didn't know what they were doing as well. So, you know. I've got a Bigsby on my SG, and I don't think it's original, but you you hit it once and that's it. (laughs) You better have your other guitar there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, it's big, huge bar. (laughs) (laughs) But you could bend them down as well as up, which you couldn't do with the fender, so it was sort of... I think I painted on mine, do not touch. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, That's why he was was so excited about the um, Floyd Rose. Yeah, that's right. That, he, he said it more than once, they sort of changed everything for him. Yeah, because he couldn't, you know, he didn't do a lot of, um, you know, until probably till the Floyd Rose come in. He didn't really do a lot of um, whammy bar, you know, manipulation at all, really. It's sort of notable when you hear it, because on those early recordings, you don't hear much of it at all. It would would just put it out of tune, and Frank would just friggin' hate that, you know. Yeah. But... But when he had the, the Floyd, I, I just found it, a quote from Merle Saunders, who was his guitar tech in the 88 tour. Yep. And he says, he says, quote, he'd do the dive bomb thing and I'd sit there and cringe. And I'd be like, oh, God damn, I hope it comes back into tune. And he'd, <laughs> he'd do the thing and we would pull it too and it would go up three or four steps. 
Mm. And yet it'd stay in tune. <laughs> <laughs> Because I don't think they had those, um, did they have those systems at the time that would, you know, I know Washburn were using it on their guitars. Paul Stanley had it on his, and I can't remember the name of it, but your guitar would always stay in tune. Yeah, yeah. I, I, don't, I mean, I think Floyd Rose was the only people who really nailed it. And yeah. That was, what, 80, 83 or so. And, like um, a locket tremolo kind of thing? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. One guitar that we did not talk about mm-hmm. is the Baby Snakes SG, which ah, was yes. also at the house, right? Well, it's still at some house. I hope it's not a big house. <laughs> Lady Gaga bought that. No, I mean, because I, 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 I'm sure I saw Alex Winter holding it in some early promo shots for the movie. Yeah, for the yeah so, I don't think it was in the catalog, if I'm not mistaken. No, no, no it wasn't. It wasn't. Definitely yeah. not. And so that's, um, I, I think that's actually possibly my favorite it's difficult every time i sort of look at the book again i go oh that's my favorite oh no maybe that one's but the the baby snakes is really really lovely and i actually found i got in touch with the guy who made it who's a photographer now in california that's right, because it's important to remember, as a sidebar, it's not an actual SG, despite what it says on the headstock. No. it's yeah. Well, what it is, it's a genuine SG body that had been burnt in a fire. Um, there's similarities <laughs> with the Hendrix track. Sure. Like, um, That's why it looks like that, yeah. Oh. No, 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 no. So you can't see anything of the original veneer. So this guy, Bart Nagel, he um, totally re-veneered it. He was working for a guitar manufacturer shop that had a whole load of exotic woods mahoganies and so on and rosewood and so he managed to find some that were just sort of the right shape more or less and so he completely re-veneered it the neck had been ruined so he built a new neck from scratch and he made it with an extra fret so it's one fret longer than a gibson um and he originally built it with stock gibson pickups and electronics and so on but then Frank did with a whole bunch of these guitars. He just got them wired up by um, various guitar techs. Rex Bogue's team did most of yes. them originally. And he was going to sell it to Steve Howe. Was he really? But, yeah, because he'd, um, he'd made a loot for Steve Howe. <laughs> <laughs> and so he thought, I've made a lovely guitar, and for some reason, I don't know, if he, he just perhaps decided to sell it to Frank or... Steve Howe wasn't interested, but anyway, he just show, showed up at a gig and sort of knocked on the door and said, hey, do you want to buy this guitar? And Frank said, yeah, and gave him a few hundred dollars for it. <laughs> a few hundred dollars, my God. <laughs> yeah. And that's an actual Gibson neck? No, no, it's a handmade neck. Oh, it is a handmade neck. Okay. So the, the, bod- the body is based on an authentic SG body, mm-hmm. but he, he made the neck himself. And it's, that's why it's got an extra fret. It's one fret longer. Oh, that's right. That's right. I got con- I get yeah. confused with some of the details. Yeah. <laughs> but and I think he it, it made it quite a low profile neck as well, lower than possibly the standard ones, which is how Frank liked them as well. So that probably that probably made the sale, I guess. 
Yeah, and then he went from that to the uh, sunburst Les Paul that we see yeah. um, on the cover of um, Shut Up and Play Your Guitar, and that was the standard guitar for a while. And from there back to um, Strats, right? The performance Strats. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean those two. I keep saying, I keep switching between them actually, because certainly that that Les Paul is, is also one of the most beautiful looking guitars, and that mm-hmm. that's partly how they ended up as the two guitars on the cover of the book. I think the the most photogenic. But um, but yeah, and then it was Strats with odd little things like the mini guitars in between and stuff as well. Mm-hmm. The SG that Frank was playing at Montreux in 71 during the fire eric who is um nige lennon's he was her husband he said that that was um nige's guitar no no not the sg yeah i didn't think so because he had he had the sg he played it at the bath festival as well um he had it before no there was confusion there because he had a big semi-acoustic guitar, mm-hmm. the ES-355, yep. the one he used on 200 Motels. And apparently different people, and I spoke to Nigel as well, um, she said that he bought her a guitar like that, and it was an ES-350-something, but maybe not that same model. Oh, really? So there was possibly a guitar that was hers, and possibly Frank was using it at that time because he – you know who knows what happened to the the original three five five? No idea, but not the SG anyway. But whatever, they're all you know they're all ashes now. <laughs> yeah, well that's true. It struck me strange that I was pretty sure that was the SG that he was playing. Well, I guess must have been through most of seventy um, one anyway, because um, yep. he did have the other the hollow body Gibson um, in in late seventy and throughout a lot of seventy, but. Were you ever able to track down any um, other information on the Telecaster that he used at uh, the Rainbow Theater show in 71? Apparently, it's it's owned by um, Mark Bowman, I think, in the memory serves me right now. Really? Yeah, because he traded his Martin D18S with Frank for the Telecaster, and I did speak to Mark sometime. Oh, was know. that Telecaster? Yeah. Oh. So at the time I spoke, he said it was still in his possession. So the Rainbow Telecaster, which just one he just he just bought just for the gig, and it was apparently a, a crappy guitar. He, yeah. he didn't like it. Chubby so. strings, stock fender. That's the word. Yeah. Telecaster with chubby strings. Yeah. Yep. So the the Martin guitar, which I saw, was was the one that was originally Mark Volman's. What was the fretless acoustic? Okay, now that's that's really again a bit of a mystery. <laughs> so, and and sometimes it gets confusing in interviews because he talks about his acoustic fretless guitar, but what he means is he had an acoustic control corporation fretless guitar that's so right. the people who made the amplifiers yep. acoustic control for a while made some electric guitars called a black widow 
Frank had at least two of these because um, I've seen pictures of one that Ray White borrowed for a while and pictures of Frank with a different one, which we found in a very sorry state in the UMRK. But oh. both of those have got frets. And he did have apparently another acoustic Black Widow without any frets, but that got lost or stolen or something. So I think he had three altogether. But. Okay. What's he playing on Sleep Dirt then? That's the... He might well be, because it could well be that he's just playing an electric guitar, not amplified. You can't really sort of... You can't you really can't tell. Really think, yeah. You can't really tell. So it could have been the fretless acoustic, or it could have been another acoustic guitar without any frets, which nobody I know has ever mentioned, or I don't know anything about it. So mystery, really. And I asked Weasel about this. So the only fretless we know about is the acoustic control is the Black Widow. And I don't know whether Frank would have called that the Black Widow or the acoustic, you know. In fact, yeah, he did. I've just, Frank called it an acoustic. He says at one time, acoustic manufactured a fretless guitar. So he, that may well have been the one that he was talking about. The time is about right. Um, oh, and the, he, had a, he had a fretless strap as well. Oh, yeah. Okay. Which, which. No idea, no pictures, no nothing, except there's a tape that someone took of him tuning up at some sound check somewhere. <laughs> 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 he actually how far used I it live. Into... Oh, my God. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. There's, it's, uh... um, it's just somebody on the Steve Hoffman forum who says it's a, um, a prototype fretless guitar but doesn't give any other. So they probably don't know you know, one way or the other, what it was, would be my guess. Yeah, but. as I say, I'd make a bit of conjecture on there, because it could well have been, because Frank told the story as well, he said that this acoustic that I've got, it didn't have the acoustic logo on it, because, I don't know, they, they didn't want, as what he says, they didn't want anyone to know they'd made such an error as to make a fretless guitar. And I think that's bogus, <laughs> to yeah. be honest, because <laughs> they wouldn't do that. It might well have been something some smart guitar salesman told him because for a while the black widows were made by Hofner. And so it, it could have been, you know, originally the people who made black widows, they, they got them made by Hofner and stuck a badge on it. Mm-hmm. And so maybe it was a prototype made by Hofner that didn't have a badge, but certainly the second generation acoustics, they would have put their name on it. So very mysterious guitar that, yeah. um, and came to a sad end really. What? Just because it's in, well, because it just totally neglected. It was covered in dust when we found it, and it was sold. They dusted it, but that's all. And uh, Oh, they sold in the auction. Yeah. Dweezil said it, it was not a great guitar, in his yeah. opinion. So, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. It's one of my favorite pictures in the book, Frank, with that guitar. Yeah. Yeah, that, I didn't about, even know that that guitar existed before the book. Uh, one, of, one of the people I was telling about, great French photographer called Tony Frank, Mm-hmm. He was very, very generous in his fee, and he's, he took a whole load of pictures, that the famous ones are pictures of, of a pregnant Gail and Frank with and, um, Baby and Dweezil. And Moon, right? Yeah. Yeah, when she was pregnant with Dweezil. Uh, sorry, yeah, Baby Moon, and that's right, yeah. So those pictures, this one came from that session where Frank said, I want to pose with my new guitar, but 
one of my favourite pictures of Frank. I think it's a shame it's a bit smaller than I might have liked, but hey. Oh no, it's still a great picture. What do we know about that Hagstrom from 75? I think I've asked you when you were, you know, dragging through your sort of, you know, unofficial recordings, if anyone has got any recording of it, and I can't find any record of it at all. Mm. But he, he tried it, and he didn't like it. And the Hagstrom, it was, a, it was a guitar synthesizer, but the idea was it didn't sort of transduce the vibrations of the strings or anything like that. Basically, the... The frets and the string were wired with resistors. So when you touch the fret, touch the string down onto a fret, it will complete the circuit with a particular resistance. So all the all the frets had a different resistor, I guess, in the neck or something. So it was also it made playing the guitar almost like I don't know a stylophone or something like that. <laughs> so it's not touch sensitive or anything, you know. You just- no. It doesn't no. recognize, you know. And, and basically, it, it didn't make any difference what you did with your right hand either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was just what you did with your left hand. So Frank tried it, and probably that old, you know, that one gig where there's that one photograph and thought, you know, what is this? He, he was not impressed with that. And he tried a few guitars since, but that was that one. And I don't think, I don't think they sold very many, to be honest. Yeah, I think that's the only picture <laughs> of it I've ever seen, actually. Yeah. Yeah, there's a one. There's a there's an amateur Hagstrom fan site where there's this one picture with the guy's copyright all over it, um, and that's the only one. But it was an interesting idea. But then before you know, quite quickly afterwards, people like Roland and um, so on had sort of figured out that they could actually get some sort of transducer to get a digital signal out anyway. Yeah, which Frank tried and didn't like. Well, yeah, that wouldn't have been very workable the way that Hagstrom had it set up. It was a good try, though. (laughs) But I I don't think there's any recordings, as far as I know, um, of him playing it, because there's nothing. You would think that tone would stick out. Yeah. So, you know, he may have just tried it that one night on one song and just thought, ah, no good. You know, Yeah. he was always trying new stuff. But, you know, people were bringing him. Yeah, try this new pedal, try this amp, whatever, all the time. So they got a point where I thought, actually, I'm going to have to sort of limit myself to stuff that he actually used continuously. Because if you ask me what effects pedals did Frank use, I'd say all of them. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he did. I'm sure he tried every single one that was on the market. You know, so. <laughs> the board was very complicated, especially, you know, like you get to the later tours, right? You know, oh. million effects in there. Insane. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely insane. Really, I mean, do you know anything about those boards that he had? I mean, the only one who had anything like it was probably Pink Floyd. I was he, just thinking that David Gilmore, David Gilmore yeah, would. Have I think. I think. I don't know if they ever sort of swap notes, but I think they had a technology race going on there. Mm-hmm. What Frank did, he, he got any, any effects pedal that he wanted. He got his guys to take the circuit board out of the pedal mm-hmm. and put it into a little small metal case with a prop, with an input for a proper power supply and 
whatever. And these would go into his rack and his pedal board would then have a big multi-core connector so that each pedal could be switched. So it switched on or off or did something else to one or other of these effects modules. So it was a huge analog system, but programmed by sort of wires and relays as if it was a digital one. So he could sort of connect things in different order and so on. It was by all accounts a nightmare. Um, Sure. But... You know, and, and it cost an absolute fortune, weighed a ton. The amount, Dweezer was saying, the amount of money he spent just on shipping it by air was a nightmare. And uh, Mel Sanders, another one of his stories, he said that um, on the tour, Frank was doing something and then he stepped on the wrong button and some horrible howling feedback came out. <laughs> and, he, and he just looked over at Merle, who was sitting at the side, he's a guitar tech, and he just sort of calmly walked on stage and pushed the right button to stop it, <laughs> noddy thank you, and walked back on stage. <laughs> Merle, Merle was a really great guy, lovely bloke to interview, actually. Um, yeah. People who met him on the final tour were saying what a – gentleman he was he was you know he was always giving the fans frank's picks and set lists and all this sort of stuff and he's, he's a lovely guy and he's now i forget his exact job he works for dolby corporation he's a senior executive of some sort but good guy son of mel sanders who played with the grateful dead of course i was gonna ask you about that if that was yeah, the he's same. mel sanders jr really i didn't yeah, know that's that. his dad yeah yeah <laughs> i've said this before um Although there were times when Gail gave me a hard time, mm-hmm. um, and but there was much more times when she was just wonderful and engaging and charming, and, and like the story I said about setting up the, the interview with Ruth and so on. Mm-hmm. And I really liked Gail. I mean, yes, she was irascible and capricious. I think both those words were invented for Yeah, Gail. I think so. <laughs> but um, all in all... She was just a delightful person to be around, quite honestly. And you can sort of, I remember after having met her, and you know, she still had that wonderful beaming smile. And I just, when she turned that on, I just, I saw that and I thought, I bet she did that to Frank and he wouldn't have stood a chance. Yeah. (laughs) You know, because it was, it was just like, ah. And so a lot of time for Gail. And I think I kept my promise and I didn't let her down. And I'm very happy about that. I thought it was nice when I wrote Frank letters when I was a teenager. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and and I got letters back from Gail. Really? And I, I, yeah. And I thought that was neat. Me and my best friend would listen to Zap all the time. We oh, wrote yeah. some letters when we found out he was sick and, and she wrote back and just, no, I know I got him in storage, but basically wrote, you know, thanks for your concern. And, you know, she's so glad that younger kids were enjoying Frank's music and stuff. And, you know, sent me a catalog, of course, for Barking Pumpkin and some dope you are what you use stickers and stuff. Right. That's yeah. And, 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 and it was it was handwritten in pencil, too. Yeah. Really? Yeah. That was, yeah, yeah. And I, I always thought that was like, wow, you know. Of course, we love Frank, but wow, his wife took the time to do that. It was always being run the house at Woodrow Wilson, it was being run as a family business. 
you know, that's the way they did it. It was like a little cottage industry. It really was like in the, you know, when, when I went the there, term. sadly, and I, it was a shame I wasn't the, there's a basement Frank's listening area in the studio, um, which you must've seen pictures of. It's where he's got all the car registration plates yeah, and stuff. Sure. And we weren't allowed to, I wasn't allowed to go in there. Kurt told us, I'm sorry, I can't let you go in there because there's a whole load of boxes of new product that I'm not allowed to tell you or anyone yet what it is. And so we can't go in there. And so, you know, they were still doing distribution from the house. And I mean, right back in the, back in the sort of sixties and seventies, Pauline Butcher's book talking about her and Gail were sort of, you know, answering the fan mail, Mm -hmm. doing the secretary stuff then. So it's, he's always run it like that. He worked with um, record companies only when he had to, you know. I'll say this about Dweezil as well. He was awesomely conscientious about giving me the foreword that he wrote. And he, you know, I'd mentioned this to him after we'd seen him in, what, January 2012. I said, oh, you know, would you like to write a foreword? And he said, oh, yeah, sure, sure. Mm. And he finally did 18 months later after some sort of very polite nagging from me if you like (laughs) and he was busy you know incredibly busy man touring and everything else and so on and you know and i was saying look dweezil if you're really busy you know i can ghostwrite it for you if you want i don't mind you know Mm -hmm. and he said no 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 i want to do i I absolutely want to do this and eventually email me says right says i'm doing nothing this weekend apart from writing your forward and uh (laughs) and he did and he sent it through and uh, yeah bless him he was lovely man you know, when I was looking at that Hoffner bass that Roy was using. Yes. Yeah. Is that at, well, it was at the UMRK. Yeah. I think that got sold, didn't it? I think it so, was, yes. it was, it was in the auction. No, it did. It got sold. That was, that was a really surprisingly nice guitar. Actually, it, it was in beautiful condition, a really handsome guitar, you know, and apparently, um, Dweezil said he tried it. He says it's a real killer fuzz, fuzz box built into it as well. I always thought that was Roy's bass. So when I first got my copy of the book, I cracked it open and there's the, the Hoffner 500. And uh, <laughs> I didn't realize yeah. that that was Frank's guitar even. No, that's right. Roy, Roy just liked Fender. And you, yeah. you'll see some some of the early the clips of them in New York. He's playing a Fender, I think. Yes. Um, yeah. I had a qu- question since, you know, talking about yep. gear and everything. Yep. Now, you know, it, it's a unique situation with frank you know because he has all these stellar musicians but you know they're basically playing his music and he writes all the different aspects about it did frank ever i don't know dictates the right word but did he ever like suggest what the other musicians would play particularly like the other guitar players and stuff like you know i want you to use these effects and this equipment he did do that absolutely He did. He um, they they would often bring they bring their own bass and stuff. But he bought almost all of the keyboards right right from the beginning. George Duke was saying, you know, he he brought different keyboards that George didn't even want to play, like a Farfisa mm-hmm. organ and stuff like that. But that's what he wanted. He he wanted, you know, said so you've got to play this synthesizer thing. And George said, oh, I don't want to play that. He says, yeah. you will. You've got to. You'll be good at it. And he did. And of course, he was wonderful. But then George didn't want to sing either. And Frank said, you've got to sing. He said, I can't sing. <laughs> but he said, you but, yeah. don't invest so, in yourself. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so right, right the way through, he sort of, they would use standard gear on stage. There's times when he he, he bought oh God, an Alembic preamp, which is for his rack. He bought two from Alembic, one for himself and one for Tom. 
And so he said, you told me I want you to play through this. So he, he, he controlled an awful lot of what the bands played on stage right the way through. And, and I mean, a lot of the, the guitar stuff and the, the keyboard stuff were just, it varied each tour and they'd bring on these big keyboard stuff and so on. But yeah, he controlled pretty much all of that. Nice. And I don't know if this is true or not, but I also heard that he uh, showed Napoleon Murphy Brock how to dance. Yeah. You know. <laughs> I Frank came up with that. Wait a minute. I think I like that dance better than what you're talking about. What I'm talking about is you've been in this killer fog down here too long. What? You need something to get up and go to school with. Wait a minute. You're not talking to no fool now. Uh, I can watch videos of just him <laughs> dancing around on the stage. Yeah, not to mention, you know, I, I love his singing. Oh, yeah. I'm a huge Napoleon fan. I was so happy to see him. You know, with Zappa plays Zappa because, oh, amazing talent. Yeah, you never know. I mean, he was supposed to do um, guest spots with the Hologram Band, but they haven't gotten that far yet. I mean, the last tour was sort of proof of concept, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, it was less about the Hologram and more about um, watching those musicians play that music. Well, that's why I, I wanted to go because I'm still kind of you it know iffy hologram. on this hologram. Like uh, Ralph, sure. my co-host, he went and saw the uh, the Dio hologram tour. Ah, yes. <laughs> and and he said, you know, he said sometimes the hologram worked, sometimes it didn't. Mm-hmm. But he said the great thing was hearing that music live and yeah. being surrounded by people that want to hear that music that know it. He goes, it's just so you know, because what can you do? Because Ryan James Dio's not with us. He goes, but to hear that music again. In a live setting, and he said everybody was so happy. He said he didn't regret it for a second. So mm-hmm. what, whether whether or not when the hologram was on point or not, he said it was immaterial. It was all about the music, and that's how I am with the Frank tour. Uh, just to see those musicians play live, I I go for that alone. I I just go. I'd go and see Mike Keneally and Joe Travers. If I did, I did see mm. Mike Keneally's band a few years back with Joe, and it's just absolutely awesome. Lovely. Just reminded me of something. Um, You were talking about did Frank specify things. It's one of the stories Mike tells about the the '88 tour that he was given a new guitar to play. Ah, yes. And it was I can't remember what it was. It was one of the new new modern type of Japanese guitars. I think one of the. It's not. It's not in the book because it was like it just didn't seem relevant, and I'd have to dig through my notes to find it. But he was given this new guitar. It was one of those sort of. Typical eighties ones with just uh, you know one one control one pickup that's that sort of thing and Floyd Rose um, sort of Eddie Van Halen type guitar so yeah he was he was always specifying it I've I've, I've got some something in the book there's a whole load of Ike's on stage cabinets that some guy bought and sent me photographs of Acoustic Corporation ones so yeah, yeah a bunch he of wanted stuff. to control everything yes <laughs> yeah. I, I you know I, I had the feeling but I had to ask too because yeah, yeah. you'd, you'd yeah. be the man you know. I mean, it really, I mean, this this book, folks out there, this book is the most, you know, one of the most amazing books ever written about Frank Zappa. And I think, 
you know, if you compare it to like Grateful Dead gear or Beatles gear or any of that stuff, I think this book surpasses them. I really do. It's a great book as a historical document, not just of Frank's gear, but also of the history of these instruments and the history of the companies in some cases who manufactured these instruments. And it's just really, really nice. And you should be really proud of it, Mick, even though it'll never be finished. <laughs> okay, so I, I guess there's just one one sort of thing I want to add. I'm glad you sort of mentioned that it's a his, historical book because I, I I didn't really know what shape it was going to have when I started, but it, it soon became clear that it, it did need to be a history book. And I approached it to an extent like an academic book and I made sure everything was thoroughly footnoted and researched and so forth, which is without really knowing what I was doing. And now I've actually wound up at a university studying proper history mm-hmm. and how you write history and i'm sort of i'm looking back at this now and it's a bit strange because it's something i finished five years ago but actually i'm quite pleased with it and i think it does stand up as some sort of history so that's why i was quite pleased to be you know have people talk about oh you should give a seminar at the history department at the university about this yeah and apparently as well, i'm going to mention there's a growing interest in academic history of rock music and apparently, for example, there's if I could pretend I hadn't written the book and started again, I could have probably got a grant because there's funding available for research into music technology in England. And Paul Carr, um, another English Zappa writer who's written sure. some academic books about that, he's I mean, he is actually oh God, I'm not sure if he's a doctor or professor. He'll kill me if I say the wrong thing. <laughs> but he's uh, he, he actually teaches at a university. He's a genuine academic on various things. And um, he's just bringing out a book, which is a guide book on how to research music technology. It's, it's becoming not only just a growing field, but a growing discipline <laughs> in the world of academia. Yeah. And, it, and it's quite interesting that uh, Rowan and Littlefield, the publishers who bought Backbeat, from uh, Mel, hey, was it? Yeah, Hal Leonard. Sorry, the Hal Leonard. Yeah. They bought it from, mm-hmm. and they wanted more books about about music rather than how to play guitar and so on. Because, sure. And they're actually an academic publisher, so it, it's quite interesting. And I, I'm looking forward to seeing sort of people doing more stuff and, and more focused just on you know, you know, I'd love to see a real serious history of, of the Moog synthesizer and how that developed and that sort of thing because it's it's fascinating and the the sociology of these little companies as they started out as well they were often really idealistic they grew up as sort of you know hippies in the 70s mm-hmm. and then they got transformed and they had faced up to competition from the big companies like Rolls and so on and it's there's, there's an awful lot of sort of sociology and signs of the times if you yes. like so okay i so say the, la- the last thesis i've got so you can almost Look at Frank's guitars through the years and you'll get something about the spirit of the different decades, which mm-hmm. I think is fascinating. So you can look at the hat about Les Paul, and that is such typical of the 60s. And then in the 70s, it started having a, a beautifully made custom SG. And again, that's when like, rock music started getting a bit more money, but it was still quite hippie and out there and it sort of moved to that. Mm-hmm. And then it became corporate and he moved and you can see to a standard SG and then eventually a very high tech Fender copy. And it it sort of parallels 
what was going on in the culture and the music in a sort of way. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it absolutely does. So, you know, you can look at these sort of things as historic artifacts that tell you about the sociology of what is happening at the time, which is not my intention when I wrote the book, but I'm looking at it now with my sort of academic hat on thinking, oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) here's something that might make you happy uh i i I promise i promise this guy i I would read this on the episode this is a a listener of mine joseph staub and he started listening to my show when he was in high school and got turned on to frank because i'm always talking about frank sure and he just recently went to college i think he might be a sophomore now and he's full-blown zappa fanatic now but he actually wrote an essay in college and it ended up getting published by uh, the college newspaper. And it's entitled The Meek Shall Inherit Nothing, Frank Zappa and Postmodernism. And ah. the essay talks about uh, the postmodern criticism evident in Frank's work, specifically focusing on freak out, we're only in it for the money, and Uncle Meat. So Fantastic. I think it's great that, you know, here is, a, you know, the younger generation coming up not only discovering Frank's music, which is awesome, but also writing about it. And, uh, you know, who knows? Someday you could have this guy on here talking about uh, writing a book on Frank. And I, I just think that's great. Right. And I'm so, so yeah. proud, you know, to have a small part, you know, just to turn somebody on to it. And, you know, he's taking it to the next level with his education and his writing and stuff. So I promised I'd give him a shout out. <laughs> ah, nice. Scott, you must have seen it. The Ben Watson's book. Oh, the- sure. The negative, negative dialect. It's a poodle play. It's a poodle play. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I have that. Yeah. I, it's interesting how Frank Zappa touches people in strange ways. So I'm not going to talk about our prime minister on the election because it's too painful. But yes, Scott Scott knows that I'm very actively involved in in like socialist politics. Yep. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine who's our local campaign director in the party, Labour Party, that is, and um, she said, "Yeah, my brother." is a big Frank Zappa fan. And it was because he was a Frank Zappa fan, he read the negative dialectics of poodle play mm-hmm. and that turned him on to socialism. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, That's great. <laughs> which is, I don't think Frank would have expected that. No. By no means was he a socialist, for sure. So no, he, was, he, was definitely he was an environmentalist and he was a lot of good things, but never a socialist. But uh, anyway, there you go. <laughs> That's great. So Frank Zappa made that. <laughs> Frank Zappa made <laughs> my friend's brother a communist. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic! Come, come on, they're two separate things. That's yeah, what confuses that's people in America. <laughs> and it, and if you're friends with Scott or I on Facebook, you know where we stand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're we're cut from the same cloth. So yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Well, Mick, it has been uh, very lovely. I, I No, it'd be lovely talking to you guys. It's yeah, been it's been absolutely. Let's do this again uh, very shortly because I wanted to um, – I didn't want to let the episode go without giving a shout-out to Michael Sherwood, who was on the panel with all of us last time we were here. Michael passed away last year. Oh, no. And um, so we're – you know, we're – We'll dedicate this to uh, Michael Sherwood, and you know I know he would have definitely have loved to have been here for this show, but because um, he was looking forward to the book very much. But um, yeah, we lost him last year, so uh, that's for you, Michael. Hope you hope you enjoyed it up there, and uh, or wherever you are. And <laughs> um, he would have appreciated that joke.
And that's the end of our interview with Mick. But since the episode is kind of a short one this time, figured I'd give you a little bonus treat in the form of an interview with Frank recorded in July of 1967 at WRVR-FM Studios in New York City. This interview was excerpted on the MoFo box set, the Making a Freak Out box set, which came out in... 2006, but here we have the entire little over 15 minutes of interview. Hope you enjoy it. Frank Zappa, WRVR, New York City, July 1967, right here on the ZappaCast. We play American music. I should actually explain to the audience that Frank Zappa is the composer and arranger and album cover designer for the records that the mothers. Uh, make. Do you think that there's anything satirical about what you do? No, not really. It's all very straightforward, honest music. Like uh, Duke of Prunes? There's nothing wrong with Duke of Prunes. Uh, I think the world could stand a few more bizarre lyrics. Uh, So you're not trying to put down anybody? No, I bear no one any malice. The, uh, The group started on the coast, didn't it? Yeah, in a little town called Pomona. And, uh, was the original name the Mothers of Invention? Nope. It was a word that I can't say on your radio program. What they did at MGM when they first uh, researched the feasibility of signing us, they sent out a couple of letters to radio stations. One of them was to a station in uh, St. Louis, and the other one was to an upstate New York place. And uh, the letter said... Would you play a record by a group called The Mothers on your station if we sent you one? And the letter came back answered with, uh, we wouldn't even say the word, let alone play their records. Thank you very much. So based on that uh, intensive field research, they made their decision. They're so careful. How much uh, prejudice do you find uh, due to the fact that you're not exactly clean-cut, uh, uh, clean-cut looking group? Is there any problem I think with that's that? a matter of opinion. I didn't say you were a bad-looking group. I just well, said you were a clean-cut. Well, what is clean-cut? No. Well, clean-cut is uh, Simon and Garfunkel. Really think so? Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, compared to Simon and Garfunkel, I guess we are a little grungy. <laughs> but it hasn't held us back much. I suppose people come in there just as much to see our hair and clothes as to see the rest of the things that we do on stage. How do you find uh, audience reception when you're playing live? Uh, they haven't the faintest idea what we're doing. Why? And they probably never will if I have anything to do about it. Usually an artist tries to establish some sort of rapport. and uh... I'm not there to rapport necessarily. Uh, we give the audience what they need rather than what they want. What do they need? They need a more realistic approach to what might be described as entertainment. I think people are hypocritical about what they really enjoy. Well, how do you differ from, well, from people who haven't heard or seen the group perform? Well, I don't know how I'd be able to explain it to you in mere words. We uh, do strange things, things uh, that are things that are unusual and uh, not seen before. Live on stage, we have. Uh, it's like a great musical, sociological experiment on stage. We do experiments on the audience, and if they are intelligent and adventurous enough, they will uh, 
find that they will learn as much from these experiments as we learn from using them for guinea pigs. <laughs> They'll learn a lot. Do you think uh, that people who listen to the Mother's albums should come away with a message of any kind? Yeah, I think that uh, a lot of them do. Uh, <laughs> is there any, uh, do you have any hints as to what you think the message is? No. Oh. And if I had one, I certainly wouldn't hint to them. I didn't, I didn't think you would. <laughs> what do you think about the uh, current state of rock and roll? There's psychedelic rock, blues rock, folk rock. Uh, Poop rock. All kinds of rock. And uh, now the Beatles are coming, are coming out with songs which, to some people, are putting on the audience. The new uh, single. You don't think the Beatles have always put on their audience? Well, now, more blatantly, I think. Uh, with, uh, what could be more blatant than I want to hold your hand? Well, have you heard the new Beatles? Uh, I have the new Sgt. Pepper Sergeant album. Pepper. I'd like to thank them very much for doing a wonderful takeoff on Freak Out during the song about Rita the Meter Maid. I thought that it was very clever to have people wheezing, huffing, and panting in the background with the music still going on. You uh, are now doing a commercial for the Hagstrom Guitar People, a greasy mm. commercial. A greasy teenage commercial, yes. How do you fit that into your philosophy? Quite simply, I'm a businessman. And uh, I don't mind breaking a few rules to uh, prove some points, which I couldn't even explain to you on the radio. I have a youth market consultant service called NT&B, which stands for Nifty Tough and Bitchin'. And it's... Uh, we charge an hourly rate for consultation to other agencies and to PR firms and people who want to know how to reach a youth market in a way that uh, they have not been able to do before. It's my conviction that most businessmen have the faintest idea of how to sell to the youth market, which is a market anywhere from, let's say, 11 to 25. And our company knows how to do it, and we sell the service. And uh, it's an interesting sideline to the record business. It's an interesting commercial uh, for two reasons, I think. First, uh, a lot of it's put on, put on and put down. Uh, greasy teenage commercial, and then uh, what you advertise as being guitar music obviously isn't. Mm -hmm. And then uh, a third one is that, at least on the local station that plays it, uh, people are invited to send in for a free picture of the mothers of invention, mm -hmm. suitable for framing. Do mm -hmm. uh, you think there are a lot of people who'd like a picture of the mothers suitable for framing? Would you like me to tell you how many requests we've Lots gotten so far? Well, it's around 20,000. There are a lot of people, friends, who would like a picture of the mothers of invention suitable for framing. Do you think, uh, have you, I'm sure you know the Fugs, you played... Uh, yeah, they're good friends of ours. Uh, ...a concert with them at uh, the Village Theater. What do I think of the Fugs? Yeah. What they're trying to do. If, if they entertain did. me. I, I like to listen to their music. I mean, I like to see their shows. I'll tell you what happened the first time I heard their album. I didn't like it at all. I said, what is this? <clears throat> Hocus Pocus. Well, I can write dirty songs in my bathroom, you know, that would be... Wait a minute, I'm lighting a cigarette. Now, as I was saying about the Fugs album, I didn't like it at first. I, it was the second album that I'd heard. And then we got to New York... Uh, the first time that we came here was Thanksgiving last year. 
and they came down in force to the balloon farm, where, which is now the electric circus, and uh, sat around and watched their shows and rolled all over the floors, and they invited us down to see their show, and since that time, they drop in and see us, and you know, we go out for coffee with them and have a, a wonderful time. Do you think uh, the mothers have uh, influenced other groups or the public? Well, let's see. Sure, the Beatles, for one. I think that we've influenced uh, any group that has ever come to see us live, and many of the groups that have heard us on record have uh, sat up and taken notice of our specialties. I was approached by Lalo Schifrin to assist him in constructing certain... Uh, specialties for a, a production that he's doing. He's writing a cantata based on the rise and fall of the Third Reich with uh, Hitler as the devil. How's that grab you? Just a minute. <coughs> hmm. <laughs> that was very bizarre. <laughs> well, you have to do that, Rick. <laughs> Somebody approached me with an interesting question about uh, the title of the first album, Freak Out, and... Uh, the whole idea of psychedelic songs. What is a person? You realize there wasn't any prior to this. And if you ask about uh, have we influenced the market, stop and think about how many times you've seen that in places like sports columns, uh, freak out sales, and uh, weirdness upon weirdness. And uh, we have had lawsuit upon lawsuit against <clears throat> these people. This is a copyrighted term. Those of you out there who might be planning to use the word freak out in conjunction with some business naughty naughty will sue you to death a magazine uh, was about to go onto the market uh, called freak out usa and they have received a telegram saying cease and desist you fools because it will cost you a great quantity of money uh, somehow or another this group which many people felt had no commercial potential whatsoever have managed to influence some very important areas of American life. And nobody will really be able to analyze the full impact of the Mothers of Invention for at least five years when you can sit back and see it all in perspective. I'll tell you some of the other things that we did that nobody knows about. We were the first group in the West Coast to be playing ragas, and I don't think there was anybody on the East Coast doing it at that time, too. The birds are noted for playing a raga rock I remember when we were playing out in the sticks and kept getting fired because we were playing ragas. We came to Los Angeles and played at a club called The Trip, and I remember seeing David Crosby from The Birds standing over by the, the kitchen door with his jaw hanging down saying, come to my house and practice with me and show me how to do that stuff. And before we knew it, they had a song out called Eight Miles High. About the term freak out, psychedelic rock. How does a person in Kansas feel? who uh, may uh, smell paragoric or something every once in a while, but has this uh, conception or, or lack of it as to what's actually going on. Do you, do you ever think about that? Uh, the people in Kansas are not that bad off, I'll tell you. There are Salt Lake City. Every place. There are knowledgeable weirdos in every <laughs> small town in the world. There's always one in every town. And he knows. And whether the town knows it or not, that one guy who's still alive, that one weirdo in that town, influences in strange ways a, a lot of the life in that town. 
people like if the other people in the town are aware of the fact that Joe Blow is a weirdo and he is living such and such type of life uh, without caring uh, how the rest of the people in the town feel about the way he lives. If he is a genuine, bona fide Kansas individualist, uh, they are forced to compete with him in a strange way. And especially the younger kids, because like I suppose uh, a lot of times you see that this weirdo is the guy in high school that draws the cartoons on the sweatshirts. Uh, or the one who uh, who builds the uh, who gets an old radio and builds a transmitter that calls Mars or something like that. There are these kids, or the ones that have strange political ideas, or the, or the first kid in your school that grows a beard. A lot of times they're ostracized from the mainstream of teenage social life. But the trend now is to take notice of what these weirdos are saying and what they are doing because. Uh, you never know. They might know something you don't know, huh? Teenage America? How do you feel about a group which is uh, in the arts and, and apparently in the angry arts if they're doing that? How do you feel about that whole... Angry bag? arts? Yeah. I don't really believe it exists. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that as an organized group, angry arts puts on certain functions which reminds the community at large that uh, they are operating, but I doubt the effectiveness of this sort of uh, technique. Uh, if you really want to accomplish something politically, the only way to do it is to be as nasty and calculating as the political machine of the establishment is. And I don't think you can just get out there and say, yeah, yeah, we're going to do our thing and you're you're a nasty establishment and we're going to be artists but we're going to be angry with you about it that's not the way to do it you have to beat them at their own game what is the reception in england are they aware we've never of been the there before they do know that we exist in europe the album sells well in sweden and uh and holland not it doesn't sell as well in uh, england but that's mainly the fault of the record company because when they released it there they just pressed it and put it on the stand without any you know, concurrent publicity. And you have to have a certain amount of uh, machinery to get the ball rolling. But it has been what you might call an underground success because uh, my sources inform me that most of the groups over there have a copy and listen to it regularly, faithfully. Eric Burden from The Animals liked it very well. He performs... Uh, uh, several of the songs from the first album with his group. And The Who were interested in Who Are the Brain Police for a single, I was told. Well, uh, I know of no better way to end, really, than another song from the record. And uh, I'd like to thank my guest, Frank Zappa, who is the force behind the Mothers of Invention, for being with me this evening. Thanks, Frank. Okay, Maddie. The Mothers of Invention will be at the Village Theater on 2nd Avenue on November 4th. And that's our show. The ZappaCast was produced and edited by Scott Parker. Production assistance by Joe Travers and Melanie Starks. This podcast and all of the musical selections contained therein are copyrighted worldwide by the Zappa Family Trust. All rights reserved. Big thanks to Ahmed Zappa and all at Zappa.com. On behalf of the ZappaCast team, this is Scott Parker saying thank you for listening, and until next time, good night, boys and girls.
It's been lovely working for you this evening. Good night.